Hello friends, we are here with another edition of our weekly highlights and this is episode 123. 123, I love that number sequence. It's almost as if I was teaching my kids how to count back in the old days. But we are back uh, with another jam-packed edition of our weekly to tell you all about. And I cannot do this alone with my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? 123 episodes and we still haven't been automated by AI yet, Eric. So, uh... Must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah, it might be the key word, but it's only a matter of who knows what kind of time. But you know what? You can't beat the real thing, and that is two real enthusiastic R enthusiasts uh, giving their opinions on the great content we have in the R community. Probably a little spicy takes now and then that you can't really automate as well. So whether you like it or not, you're stuck with the real versions of us those in the audience, <laughs> but we hope you do like it. And, of course, there's a lot to like with our weekly itself. And our curator this week was Batul Almerzak. And she had tremendous help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your poll requests and other recommendations. So let's dive right into it with our first highlight today, which is kind of a meta story of how, you know, being a little proactive with documentation can help bring even more benefits to an ecosystem and pay off in more ways than one. And what are we talking about here? Well, as we've seen, many, many new integrations with R and online sources, whether it's data sources, API endpoints, other web services, it's kind of a different beast altogether, so to speak, when it comes to, say, writing a package that wraps that API call and then figuring out the best way to test those frameworks or those functions that you employ because it's a little different than just testing on your comfortable R installation right in front of you. You're not leaving the confines of your computer's network. You may be just testing typical function parameters and the like. But when you get to API services or other web services, you've got a lot of things to deal with, such as rate limiting factors if you hit that API too much and more efficient ways of storing those results so you don't repeatedly call the same endpoint over and over again. And what we're talking about today is a terrific effort compiling multiple tools available in the R ecosystem today for building your tests for your new package that's doing with an online resource. And this is the latest blog from the R Consortium, which is some a service I've been speaking very highly about over the past year or so, and an interview with a former R Weekly curator, Ma'el Salman, who is a research software engineer with R OpenSci and various other projects, where she was interviewed about her recent authoring of the book, HTTP Testing with R. This is a valuable resource for any of you in this world of building new packages, that are using these online services. But this interview not only gives a great spotlight to that book itself, a little behind the scenes on how all this came about. It actually started with a former colleague of hers in the R OpenSide project, Scott Chamberlain, a very well-respected software engineer who has developed many R packages on CRAN. In fact, if my memory serves me correct, Mike, I think he had the second most packages on CRAN behind the Hadley Wickham himself. So there's some serious cred right there, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. 
It is. And what uh, Scott did was he authored a more long-form documentation as in an online book and markdown about some of the new packages that he had been creating for packages called VCR and WebMocker that are helpful for both recording previous calls to an API and also mocking a call that doesn't actually go to an API formally, but acts as if it does. And th those are really interesting nuances there. But then Miles Salmon actually got wind of this and thought it was very useful for her recent developments as part of the R OpenSide team. And she ended up using those packages, but thought, well, you know, this might be a great opportunity to turn this into a really, you know, top notch and innovative reference for the rest of the community. Now, this is a situation where many of those that might have a daytime job or other competing priorities might try to fit this into their spare time without a lot of additional support. But going back to where this blog is hosted, she applied for funding for this project as a proposal to the R Consortium Infrastructure Steering Committee. And lo and behold, it was accepted. So Ma'al got dedicated time to finish up this book, and it is available now online, of course, in PDF and an EPUB, depending on how you want to read it. And she is actually actively updating it with newer packages that have entered the ecosystem of HTTP type testing, such as HTTP Test 2, which is based on HTTR2, another reimagination of Hadley's previous efforts with Web API calls in R. But it's a great behind-the-scenes look at who this book is aimed for and also what Mal is actually doing in her day-to-day -day work, which, again, is a lot of software engineering, a lot of top-notch uh, package development. And, frankly, it's an inspiration, right? If you see a need and an idea that the rest of the R community can benefit from, this is a valid avenue to really get some, you know, very important support for carrying that effort through because it is a struggle to fit some of these in when you've got other priorities going on. But the R Consortium is there to help with these ideas of funding innovative projects. And as I've mentioned on previous episodes, they have also been very generous to help a lot of our cross pharma efforts as well with enhancing the ecosystem around are in the use of life sciences but this is a valuable reference this http testing with r so if you haven't heard about it before hopefully it's mission accomplished at least tell you about this and definitely bookmark it we'll have a link to the both of course the interview as well as the book itself in the show notes for this episode so congratulations to mal and scott they are co-authors on this great book for getting the initial release out and i'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds in this very important niche of the R package ecosystem. It was a great interview with Mael, and it sounds like it's two real powerhouses in terms of R software engineers coming together between Mael and, and Scott Chamberlain. Um, and Mael is a research software engineer with R OpenSci and just an all around R and software engineering wizard, in my book at least. Um, and, and like you said, she co-authored this book, HTTP Testing in R with Scott, which really details considerations, tips, and tricks for 
unit testing in our package that, that interacts with or depends on web resources because because some of those nuances that come into play when you are trying to test a package that does interact with internet resources can be things like ensuring that your, your tests don't burden that online resource that it's depending on, um, the inability to trigger an API error to test how your package handles different API errors and things like that. So, but before this book, Mel says, you know, there was really no central place for learning about these tools one can use uh, to help in in this process. And and the book is intended to sort of bring together and aggregate all of the different resources that can help you test packages that are sort of in this domain space. So I really appreciate the R Consortium's initiative, especially to, to help fund open source efforts exactly like this one. Uh, I think we've talked about it before, Eric, but lack of funding for open source development was a huge problem and and still continues to be a huge problem in a a lot of ways. Uh, It doesn't have a lot of obvious solutions, but efforts like what the R Consortium is doing, I think, really go a long way towards ensuring that open source projects uh, like this one have the potential, uh, open source projects like this one, which have the potential to, to revolutionize some aspect of data science, you know, have the longevity that they need in terms of maintenance and updating and, and things like that. So I think that sort of whole ecosystem is improving with organizations like our consortium. Um, but I, I think we still probably do have a long way to go as well. We certainly do, and but the, what's nice about seeing projects like this get successful here is that you might think, oh, my idea has to be this brand new package or this brand new pipeline. You know, there are so many ways to benefit the ecosystem. This is a critically beneficial way, is having a canonical, very top-notch reference that we can point people to instead of them being lost in the in the world of choice and anything in open source, there's more than one way to do your testing in this space. So being able to compare and contrast all these so you can make an informed decision, but not have to hunt all this around yourself is a, is a very valuable effort. And I can say as somebody that was pretty new to this idea, this book was actually super helpful as I created what may be my only third R package ever that I've released in the open to scrape the API of the podcast index where this podcast is sitting. And I used this book to figure out which testing package I wanted to use. And uh, I found ways of not burdening the API service that, again, some very uh, top-notch technical folks in in the south of the U.S. have authored. I didn't want to make them angry by hitting their API at random intervals in my DevTools check paradigm. So... Um, I can tell you from a first kind of user experience, this book is extremely helpful, but I'd say there's never harm in trying if you have that great idea to help improve the ecosystem. And other examples of where the consortium has played a a big role is helping fund a lot of the great transformative efforts of the Our Ladies organization that has been multiple proposals that have been funded to help the user groups get off very efficiently and I know uh, quite a few people in those or in that organization that have spoken very highly of their experience. So again, just another great success story and what we can do to help open source get even better in many different ways and not just always technical ways. That's an excellent point. And I want to give a, a nice golf clap to you for writing your unit tests in your new R package that interacts with the, with the podcast API. 
And exactly like you said, I, I think if, if somebody's out there right now, you know, working on an open source project or maintaining an open source project, no matter how big or small, you might want to consider taking a look at the, the funding provided by our consortium and consider applying to it because you, you never know once you put that uh, out to the community, you know, how valuable your project might be. And maybe you don't need much and maybe it's a great use case uh, for getting yourself some funding for your open source project. Speaking of watching and looking, well, we're going to take another visit to a great enhancement to visualization for our second highlight today, which again, in audio form, we're going to do our best to convey the power of this. But um, I don't know about you, Mike, but gone are the days of me just plotting a few points on the scatter plot and being able to easily distinguish between trends of, say, different groups of data or different time points and whatnot. We got a lot of data we're sifting through. And if you have like me and you're trying to quickly get to know your data in an exploratory analysis, you throw out the points on the scatter plot and you notice there's just this section that just looks like this big, massive blob of ink that's been splattered on your plot. And you're trying to make sense of just what's happening in that group. And sure, we can use tools like Plotly or, or GGIRAF to really get some interactive zooming into that, but that may not be enough. You may be wondering if there's a way to efficiently display this kind of multitude of data that tends to overlap or overplot against each other. Well, in our next highlight, we're going to put the spotlight on a brand new package called ggblend, which has been authored by Matthew Kay, assistant professor at Northwestern University. And we're going to give a quick take on some of the basic functionality of the package and why we think it may be worth your time if you find yourself in this situation. So I think the best place to start is going right to the package website. He starts off with a simple data set plot of what looks like a lot of points. And you can already see in the different groups of sets that are part of this visualization, there's a lot of overplotting going on in the center of these scatter plot blobs, if you will. But the way ggblend works is that it lets you do compositing very efficiently for layers in ggplot, which is a newer functionality, the compositing functionality in general, is new as of R4.2. And this is something I personally have not dived into very much, but um, I did do a little you know, research as always we do um, for this very podcast. And I saw that Paul Merle, a member of the R Core team, wrote a great blog post about how they were updating the R graphics devices and compositing effective, you know, new backend enhancements to the compositing to deal with overplotting was part of this update. So uh, Matt, right off the bat, mentions that you must have R 4.2 or later to be able to run ggblend to take advantage of this. But okay, what does this all really mean? So Matt has wrapped ways to use algebraic transformations to help blend these different geomes together in a way that let you still distinguish between the parts of your plot that may have more concentration of data points or maybe distribution curves that have overlap in their error bars or error distribution, you know, like a confidence interval. And they're very easy ways to invoke it. You basically pipe a layer to functions like partition and blend 
to combine these blending modes as you see fit where you've got different versions at your disposal, such as making some a little more darker in the concentrators, maybe making something a little more lighter on the outskirts so you can easily distinguish what's happening in those more concentrated points. And then as your plots get more complicated with multiple geomes, multiple geometries, there are ways to even blend those together in a successful way. I have not heard about this package before this highlight, so I'll definitely take a look at this quite closely as I look at efficient visualizations of simulation results, where we often have to look at distributions of our point estimates or distributions of you know, meeting what's called a critical success factor. And we often have many iterations of simulations that are concentrated in a specific range with specific error variability. So I'm thinking this package would be very helpful in those situations. And then Matt concludes with a question that many of us might ask. How compatible is this in the ggplot2 ecosystem itself? He does mention this is something he's going to look into you know, in future enhancements, but that he can confirm that it is compatible with a lot of innovative packages already, such as ggAnimate, where at the end he replicates the famous Gapminder visualization of GDP and life expectancy with ggBlend factored in. So it looks very similar to what they have in the ggAnimate documentation, but just with those additional calls, the blend in the appropriate geom. So if you're doing a animation of any sort, it looks like this package ggBlend is going to have you covered there too. So again, audio, I try to do my best to explain it, but obviously take a look at the at the website to see all this in action because I think it is a, a great enhancement that can help you deal with a very gnarly problem that occurs when you just have a boatload of data to deal with. Yeah, shout out Matt. He, he's an awesome developer, especially in the Bayes ecosystem for R. He, he's the author of the Tidy Bayes package and the GG Dist package as well as now gg blend and i think this is super cool especially for all of the the data viz specialists out there you know we all know how important it is to effectively communicate the stories in our data and for me it really comes down to a lot of the times the little things uh, that can make a huge difference between your audience understanding the conclusions you're drawing in your visualization or th them failing to do so. You know, either not understanding the visualization or, or drawing the incorrect conclusion uh, from your, your visualization altogether. And, and as we know, when it comes to ggplot2, layer order matters, uh, particularly when geoms overlap each other. So this is really where the ggblend R package uh, can shine. And you can specify how these overlapping elements should blend together. Uh, you know, like you said, such as the scatter plot example that has, has two go color groupings uh, which overlap each other. And uh, you know, I was blown away, like you were, that this package also works so well with ggAnimate. Uh, so you can bring the, the beauty of blending to your animated visuals as well. So I'm very excited to try this out with my next uh my, my next data visualization project where I'm doing some static data viz work with ggplot2. I think ggblend is going to be uh, huge for me because I don't find myself doing too many visuals uh, these days with small data sets, you know, where I'm not getting some sort of overlapping elements or, or geoms in my final output. 
Yeah, and um, good callback. I, I knew Matt had created some packages before, but I remember using GDDist in a Shiny app that was visualizing uncertainty of distribution. So cool stuff. So Matt knows what he's doing, folks. So top-notch developer. So great, great callback on that, Mike. I learned something new again. <laughs> yes, and he's also was on, this is a podcast shout-out, I think he was on an episode of the Learning Bayesian Statistics podcast with Alex Andorra, which is a, a favorite of mine in my journey to uh, learn a little bit more uh, about Bayesian statistics. So uh, check that out if you're interested. It was an awesome, awesome episode. He's really well spoken. Very good. So I've got some audio homework to do after this as well. I love throwing this on my podcast player when I'm out and about doing the the chores around and <laughs> running around. It's always good to learn something new. So great package. And like I said, I'm, I'm excited to try on some new projects very soon. Well, Mike, we got to visit something else that we've touched on a little bit in recent weeks, but um, spreadsheets are coming at us again, my friend. Tough way to end the highlights, but we'll see what Jumping Rivers has in store for us here. Maybe it's maybe it's not all bad. Yes, well, it, it'll be right up our wheelhouse because this is a continuation of an excellent series we've been highlighting from Jumping Rivers about why you should use R as opposed or maybe in tandem with Excel, depending on your perspective. But this is part three of that saga. It's been authored by... Amiro Abraham, where he talks about how do we handle dates in R and Excel. Now, dates itself can be a tricky subject, no matter what framework you're in. And don't get me started on time zones, because that's a rant waiting to happen. <laughs> Listen to the back catalog for some of that stuff. But this is an issue that can trip people up, especially those new to R, about best ways to handle it. And if you are coming from Excel, you may be wondering, how do you map those concepts together? Now, I'm going to be honest, in Excel, I don't do jack squat with date processing. I just put them in and just let it be. And hopefully I don't fall in the same trap as some high profile, um, may say learning experiences that we've heard in the past, where some gene expression fields are misclassified as dates. And that can cause havoc for many, many reasons. That's that's freely available for research if you want to learn more about that. But we're not diving into that, that uh, saga. But apparently there are the classical functions in Excel that can get maybe the date, the year, the month, and other formatting. Now in R, where I've always gone to to start my journey with dates processing is the looper date package as one of the very first ones I remember coming across when I started to import data from biomarker sources or the lab gave us dates that were supposed to be formatted the same way, but no, they were not. There was some special nonsense in some of the fields. And I remember Luberdate was the best way for me to get a handle on how to deal with some of those esoteric uh, entries. And there are lots of handy functions in Luberdate that are highlighted here in this post to grab, to convert a string of a date sequence into a date object, how to derive time intervals, which is easily one of the more um, difficult things for me to deal with um, in recent past, is making sure I knew exactly how many days or how many seconds or hours were between two different dates. So Luberdate's got 
handy ways of deriving that information. And yes, of course, Excel can do that too, but you know me, I'm not a point and click person, except when I build shiny apps, but you know, we'll leave that, leave that as it is. Um, <laughs> small caveat. Small caveat, you know, we're, we're full of those, but there are other great handy functions in Luberdate that are worth your attention, such as I mentioned before, intuitive ways to extract the year, the month or the date from a date object. So you can quickly do some arithmetic with that if you need to. And also other handy functions that you can use to apply different durations and use vectorize operations to make this quite efficient in your dplyr pipelines that have to do with date analysis. So there are lots of good primers here to show you that you can have just as much power handling dates and times with R as you could with any other software framework or GUI interface like Excel. I admit they still, I still get tripped up a couple times here and there, like I said, with the time zone conversions, but we are seeing some additional enhancements to the ecosystem, such as the clock package, which is offered by Posit as a great way to do additional customized arithmetic and time zone conversions. I think there may be even more advancements coming soon on that front. So if you do find yourself having to deal with gnarly processing of dates, you've got a boatload of choices available in R and just be patient. Eventually you will figure it out, but this post will get you on the right direction there. So yes, I will turn to R for my date processing. No ifs, ands, or buts for me. I'm in the same boat as you, Eric, and I believe this is part three of an ongoing series that Jumping Rivers has on why you should use R and comparing what you can do in Excel to what you can do in R. And I, th I think Dates is, is probably a great use case. Uh, they do a great job of trying to show the different things that you can do in Excel to format dates, uh, to extract parts of dates, and they even have GIFs of them pointing and clicking, GIFs, excuse me, of them pointing and clicking uh, within Excel to try to do these operations. But then you can see it all spelled out in the R code chunks that they have as well throughout the blog. And, and you can't beat the Luberdate package for date wrangling specifically. Uh, it's, it's tried and true. It's been around for forever. I think more recently it's been included as part of the tidyverse in the last couple of years i remember sort of the old days when it it was standalone outside of the tidyverse and you know lubridates functions to to do a lot of the same things date formatting extraction uh date differencing things like that are, are just super super powerful and it, it sort of comes back to it's hard for a private company to beat the power of open source uh, when you have sort of the whole world working on a problem instead. And, and, you know, like you said, and like Jumping Rivers says, Excel is great as a point and click interface to do to do what it's able to do uh, when it comes to dates. But if you need to sort of extend that or build in any, any automation or, or, or programming or anything like that, or real advanced data analysis, I think that's when you're going to hit the need to turn to something like R and the Luberdate package or, or the clock package as well. And your uh, points about wrangling time zones <laughs> strike a chord with me as well, because I think we've all been there as well. That's like the, the, the second half of, of wrangling dates that's that's harder even harder than the first half of trying to trying to figure out how your dates are formatted so uh, yeah I, I think they make some great points in here in the com comparison between excel and r and, and 
like you said, I've heard some horror stories of dates with Excel as well, not to throw any stones or anything like that. But <laughs> is it true that there were like uh, uh, genes that had to have their names changed or, or something like that because Excel was formatting the name as a date? So they literally had to change the name of the gene or am I making that up? I believe that is exactly the, the <laughs> example I was referencing That's at the top, which... Folks, if you're dealing with genetic data, yeah, try to stay away from Excel. That's Eric's opinion only. Don't 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 get too you know do worked up over it. But I, I think that might be a call for a database or something like that. Just saying. Our views do not reflect uh, the views of of anyone else, our employers, otherwise. <laughs> Big yes, disclaimer. I, Big disclaimer. Yeah, sometimes we have to uh, you know pull that card out now and again. But in any event. Great summary as always, and you know um, maybe we'll do another series in the future. How uh, they compare what R can um, and what R can handle as compared to other off-the-shelf platforms. But I think it's great to, especially for those that are coming new to the world of R, to kind of translate what they may be used to to how they can get you know their same work done in R, but also open up to so many more possibilities. And that's something that I can never look back on for sure. So. But we have a lot to look forward to in the world of R. And, of course, this issue itself has a lot more additional awesome resources for you to take a look at at your leisure. Now we'll take a couple minutes to call out our additional highlights here. And for me, Mike, you know this. I love it when we get to blend multiple things together and get really geeky with it, so to speak. Well, and so from the aforementioned R Open Psy that we speak highly about, their latest blog post from Steffi Lazert is talking about how she's been able to schedule Mastodon posts in R with the R2 combined R2 package combined with GitHub Actions. Oh yeah, that's some good that's some good stuff there. So I'm gonna have to take a look at how she accomplished this because I have some ideas for leveraging Mastodon more effectively with some of my ongoing work, especially as I interact more with some fellow podcasters that are taking advantage of cool tech already. I got to keep up and I'd love to use R along the way. So great, great deep dive into the workflow, some caveats about it. Um, But yeah, I'm eager to try it out because as we're trying to look at other options besides the blue bird, so to speak, it's nice to see what automation can be done in additional platforms as well. So Definitely worth checking out if you like to see how you can blend R with multiple online technologies. Mike, what did you find? That's a very cool find, Eric. Uh, for me, you know, I can't pass by a blog post by Uacia and not talk about it. So he has one this week called The Status of the DT Package. And if you are someone who creates HTML documents or Shiny apps, you probably have used the DT package to create an interactive data table uh, to showcase your data frame at some point or another. And it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, as Eway maintains more R packages over the year, he's found it over the years, he's found it more difficult uh, to actively maintain DT specifically. Uh, he says the last time that he worked substantially on it was five years ago. It's been a few volunteers who have helped him, um, but it, seems like uh, no one is really committed to full-time maintenance of this package uh, so it's going to enter 
I guess what you would call like if, if a function was superseded, that means that it's only going to get bug fixes, right? It's going to continue to stick around, but, but really the focus is just going to be uh, on ensuring that it continues to work like it's always worked and just receive bug fixes uh, if anything breaks. So he's, he's saying that it's going to enter maintenance only mode. Uh, so don't expect any substantial new features to it uh, for those folks out there who prefer uh, something that if they love the DT package exactly the way it is and they don't want to see anything change and, and they want their code to continue to work the way it, it it's always works, then uh, this might be great news for you. Um, but, you know, for, for others, eWay points out that there are a lot of other R packages for generating tables, both interactive and non-interactive. I think very recently GT has added the ability to turn your static table into an interactive table as well. So I'm sure that's going to um, you know, create a whole other wealth of table interactive uh, possibilities within R. He does point out that he feels that DT offers two unique features that are not necessarily straightforward in, in other packages yet, and that's server-side processing and table editing. Um, so I think some features from the, the data tables, JavaScript extensions uh, may also be unavailable in other packages, but it, you know, don't worry. DT is not necessarily going anywhere. It's going to continue to be on CRAN, um, but in terms of new features, uh, don't expect anything in the new, near future unless you out there want to be the new maintainer of the DT package. Yeah, and I just think back to just how many shiny apps either I've authored or in the community that are using DT in some way, shape, or form. So, if you know, first we need to thank Eway for all the work he's done on DT because boy, did that open so many possibilities for us to surface up Tabular data very efficiently. Lots of ideas have come from DT that have manifested into other packages so it really was a trendsetter in interactive exploration so i i cannot yeah i cannot thank eway enough for keeping it going for as long as he has and it is important to know it's not going away but we want to make sure like first of all i'm so glad mike you picked this as your additional highlight because i might have gone for two if you hadn't because this is some i want people in the audience to really understand is that it is a lot of work to maintain a package, to create a package, especially with the responsibilities that eWay has now with respect to R Markdown. A lot of the you know, ongoing work he has integrating with Quartal as well. There's lots on his plate. And if you find DT is a valuable source in your Shiny app development or just general R usage, you are invited to contribute, whether it's helping with issues, whether it is becoming the new maintainer. I think it's important enough to obviously keep the lights on and just setting your expectations, even if you're not one of those people that's as passionate about the development of it, but keeping your expectations in check that if you find an esoteric issue, it's going to be harder for to solve it. And you might have to, you know, keep your eyes open forever frameworks. You mentioned GT, another one I use a lot is Reactable. That's another very powerful package in this space so there's a lot to choose from but again we owe eway and dt itself a lot of gratitude for setting the stage for what was one of the very first html widgets it was one of the top i remember very well being seen eway present his work on dt at the first ever shiny conference that was in california 
many, many years ago. So just seeing how it's grown, but just seeing that transformation. Yeah, reading this this blog post gave me the feels for how far it's come. But yeah, it always open source has its own unique lifestyle. And this is another demonstration of that. That's a great point. And it sort of brings the highlights full circle this week back to our discussion about the R consortium and, and exactly how difficult it can be to maintain open source packages. And, and I can't even imagine the number of shiny apps that use DT. I know I've authored many of them. And uh, like you said, a huge thanks to Eway for, for what he's done for the community with the DT package and all the other work that he's done as well outside of that. Yep, it's again great, great uh, summary, and there's a whole boatload of additional great resources to choose from to take a look at. They're all in the this week's issue at aruhi.org. The latest issue is right there on the front page. You can also access all the back issues as well, as well as back catalog of this very podcast as well. And if you want to get in touch with us or help out with the project. You can send your pull request to that great new resource you found, a new package, a great blog post, maybe something you've created. You know, we'd love to hear about it. We're a pull request away to our upcoming issue draft, all marked down all the time. As Ehway said, if you can't learn our markdown in five minutes, he would give you $5 on the spot. I don't think he's going to be paying for that anytime soon. But in any event, it's easy to get up and running, in my humble opinion. So definitely check out the website for contributing. As I mentioned, we are on the lookout for curators as well. Um, we'd love to have you join our team. So you'll find links to get in touch with all of us on the R Wiki home site itself. And if you want to get in touch with us, you got a few different ways. We got a little contact page directly in this episode's show notes if you want to send your feedback there. You can also send us a fun little boost with a new podcast app such as Podverse or Fountain. But maybe you don't want to change your podcast app. Hey, we don't judge. We, we love the way you listen any way you like. I have a link now in the show notes or how you can boost directly to us from the Podcast Index website itself which I just made a package recently to wrap the API around. So, you know, comes full circle there too. So you find complete details on that in the show notes as well. If you just want to send us a little boost on the web as well, but we're also on social media. I am very sporadically on Twitter these days with at the RCast, but I'm also more frequently on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. Mike, where can the listeners find you? Same here, uh, still slightly on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, or Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Yeah, maybe soon I'll have to do some uh, bot or uh, R-toot uh, bot experiments with that additional find on my account and see what kind of chaos I can cause. And Absolutely. Hopefully not, hopefully not make too many people angry at me, but we'll have, <laughs> we'll have good fun with it, but Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this episode. We do this for the community and we love hearing from you. So if you do like what you're hearing, yeah, definitely get in touch with us. We'd love to hear it. But that will do it for episode one, two, three of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. And we will be back with another new episode next week. <laughs>